Welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hey, Jeremy. How you doing today? Hey, man. It's been a few weeks, isn't it? Yeah, it's been a little bit crazy, but back in the groove this week. I crept away to Palm Springs for seven days. It's my first vacation, actually, in a, a long time, like two plus years. Because I don't really count going back to Australia to visit my family as a true, true vacation. And so, yeah, it was nice to get time off away from devices. I, I had my Kindle. That was the only device, which was nice. 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 Yeah, that's great. And so, uh, and, and while you're back, you know, the show did barely limped along. So <laughs> at least I got an episode out. Although, to be fair, I forgot I forgot to send it out on Friday and then the our editor was busy, so thank goodness I. <laughs> but but we're back, so we got a full set of news for for everyone this week. Um, first one, which is near and dear to my heart, probably not too many other people, but Visual Studio has announced they'll have a new version coming out three years after the previous one. So Visual Studio 2022 has been announced. Wow. Yeah, it, it's a little bit anticlimactic, really, because you know the 19.6 or, or seven, whatever it's on now, I even lose track. They, they've been doing regular releases uh, all all along, but. Uh, the big thing is 64-bit, which a lot of people made noise about. But I think actually what's going to be the big bunch of the work is the uh, multi-platform app UI, the MAUI ser- service. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. the merging of Xamarin and web stuff. So I think that's kind of be uh, helpful for those folks who are doing more native UI stuff. So good, at least to see the things are moving along. So we'll put the lo- a link to the announcement in the, in the show notes. You can read more about it if you want. I remember being a... Uh- one of the builds, I think it's one of the first ones. I was sitting with Dan Holm too, and they announced that the latest release of Visual Studio at the event. And I don't think they really fought it through. Like apparently they'd talked to people at the event to make sure the conference Wi-Fi was going to handle everyone downloading it. And they were definitely way overconfident because it just <laughs> took down the Wi-Fi. And then everyone everyone was in sessions and doing obviously doing demos where the internet was required. And yeah, things got pretty ugly after that point. <laughs> Oh, the good old days when you could do that. Yeah, the yeah. good old days. Yeah, when you could be in person at a conference and destroy a Wi-Fi network. You know, as, as we're talking, I scrolled down, the blog post has 302 comments. So I guess there's quite a few people who are excited, or at least have something to say about it. <laughs> yeah, I think those things will always be a thing. Yeah, so just good stuff there. So uh, the next Microsoft news item we have is something that uh, you, sh- you probably know a little bit about. Yeah. Feature request experience for Microsoft Graph is changing. Yeah, so um, we're moving direction to follow the rest of Microsoft, much like we did with Microsoft Q&A, actually. Um, so that's been going great. Um, Kendall Burns um, is in the identity group and has a team that kind of monitors Q&A. And I think they were saying it's a 75% response rate within it's like a 24 hours or something for all questions asked on the forum. So if you do have graph questions, going to Microsoft Q&A is definitely the right place to go. And in a similar move, um, we've moved over to the Microsoft tech communities for our feature requests capabilities. And it's similar to what you're used to. Like you can post a feature request, you can vote up an existing one, you can add comments on an, uh, an existing one as well. And our PMs will be able to go in there and see what's being voted up and be able to comment back and ask follow up questions and so forth. The nice thing about Microsoft tech communities is the profiles are richer, much like on Q&A where, like I noticed the planner app only request is already up to 24 votes on this platform. And uh, Luis Freeze 
who is an MVP, had made comments about like, can't wait for this to happen, like exclamation mark. And you can hover over Louise and actually see that she's an MVP and what other contributions she's made to the community. That helps both our PMs that maybe aren't aware of that, but also helps the rest of the community to kind of see and have that kind of engagement with people. So um, I'm really happy with the new new platform and you know it's super straightforward to use. You just sign up for a Microsoft tech community, which most of you are already in if you've already engaged in various other teams that are already on that platform. Yeah, so just keep that feedback coming. My team spends a lot of time looking through all those different sources as well as our kind of our white glove engagements we do with larger ISVs and large enterprise customers. And um, it all adds up when we go and speak to each workload team to kind of express what we think they need to go do. And actually, in the last two weeks, we've been doing all these briefing meetings with To-Do and Planner and Teams and SharePoint and you know all the, all the usual suspects to kind of let them know, look, this is the signal that we're hearing externally and making sure they're aware of it. So yeah, we've moved it. Uh, the support page is up to date on the graph.microsoft.com website. And yeah, if you can add all your contributions there as you're trying to build out solutions. We'd really appreciate it with as much detail as you can publicly share. And if you're a partner, I will say, please reach out because you can join our tap program and kind of share privately with us. And we capture it on an internal system, which is, you know, gives us the ability to kind of have a little bit more about the customer demands that are asking for it and stuff, which can often help prioritize things on backlogs as well. So I know the Q&A is segmented by technology and there's a specific one that for the graph, which I'll put in the show notes, but is, is this submit idea section the same way? Does it matter if I putting something in graph or planner or does it matter? Or? Yeah. So this tech community one, there are areas for graph and the other terms, but it's also inclusive of office add-ins and other technologies within M365. So it's a consolidation approach as well. Um, some of the other teams have still got existing other experiences they're using, but the the end goal here is, is that we will consolidate so that M365 development is one place to go. Because you know, as a developer, if I'm building a Teams app, I don't necessarily want to have to go to three different experiences to submit feedback on Teams. And so we, we are, as a, as a big giant V team across Rajesh's org, trying to consolidate on all these experiences. So Graph, like we did with Q&A, we're just the first ones to jump because we feel the pain the most because we're across so many different products and services. Um, and then we just kind of gently convince the other product teams to move over as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, and that's helpful for us outside, right? Because knowing the exact person or the exact team that's providing something, sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's less so. So great to see that. Yeah, we, we're trying not to ship our org chart as much as possible in the future. And, you know, historically, it's a thing where, you know, the M365 platform was the Office 365 platform, which was business productivity online services, <laughs> which was a bunch of box products, right? So um, it's definitely a journey. And these things take a long time, unfortunately, in a company the size of Microsoft. Yeah. So my question about SSO in a bot in Microsoft Teams with various app registrations, I still don't know where to send that feedback. So <laughs> we'll keep digging. <laughs> yeah, that would really yeah. be in the Teams feedback experience for sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, moving on to the community. The, my first link in here is actually kind of tied to last week's show, uh, running the CLI for Microsoft 365 in Docker. So there is a blog post from the PNP group about this. And so I know G Gary 
Trinder talked about this on the show last week, but if you want to see the, the printed version, it is there. I installed Docker for Windows, said, oh, that's interesting, and then proceeded to uninstall it. So it's not my cup of tea necessarily, but it's there for folks. <laughs> who, um, it, well, I shouldn't say it's that. I nearly got into that world in my stint with Azure Functions team and then swiftly moved out of that world. CJ did all that work. Yeah, I, I wasn't me. Well, I can see the benefit, but it's it's still close to running a VM, and the machine, my normal laptop, isn't really set up to have you know eight thousand virtual disks stored on it, and so on. So, but the but it's all there, and it works great, as as Gary said. So, put that out there for folks to see. That's going to be the scariest thing about going back into the office, which I don't think is happening anytime soon for us. But like, I'm on my gaming machine at home, which has you know like umpteen CPUs <laughs> and SSDs and like RAM up the wazoo. And every time I go to use my work laptop just to keep it alive so it doesn't get removed from the domain, I'm like, this machine is so slow. <laughs> That's going to be my biggest complaint. I'm going to end up having to buy a machine at work, I think, to compare to the one at home. Oh, yeah, you get spoiled. I can see that. And the next one is a... I put this in the community news because it's on a blog platform that's not Microsoft, but it's written by <laughs> Sebastian LeVere. I'm sorry, Seb. I always get the damn name wrong. So, I, for, but written by Seb using the latest Microsoft Graph client in SPFX. So, nice to see uh, the, uh, the guys uh, putting out more information out there. I'd like to see that. Yeah, I, I just come out my one with him actually, and um, I didn't realize he'd done this, and um, it's pretty good. I think the, the challenge we have, and this is a criticism of us really, is this like looking at Seb's blog post, it reads way better than the ones that we have on the official Microsoft Graph blog because the way that it formats his code and it's more visually appealing. Um, and so it's something that we keep pushing back on. It's like we really need to fix our blog so that our blog's going to look this good. Um, even down to just embedding Nick's initial tweet in this post. But yeah, so the using that Graph client, the SDK inside of SPFX, it's actually really nice with the way Seb's explained all this. So we should really get uh, get him on the show to talk a bit more about this in detail, I think. And there's some really, really cool stuff coming um, from the SDK teams. So if you're using the JavaScript APIs right now and interested in things like um, the type ahead and IntelliSense type aspects so that you get in .NET that you don't get in our JavaScript SDK, um, there's some work that Vincent Beret actually is doing with Daryl Miller um, to make that really really cool so it'll improve that graph client a lot and we, we've been looking at the telemetry recently and it's been really impressive to see how many people are flipping over to the sdk as a default when they're creating an app um so thank you for everyone that's supporting that stuff on the graph i really appreciate it yeah i've seen a lot of fun stuff coming through the the um the preview branch if you will call it in the in the dotnet sdk it's really nice and and on the microsoft graph community call back in april Vincent actually was on showing a little bit about what's coming down uh, in the future. So if you want to learn more about the SDK stuff, uh, you can certainly watch that video. Uh, and uh, he's on our list to, to come back to the show when uh, after it gets released and, and tell people how, how they can use it. So great to see that moving forward. Next link is uh, the next in a series by Chris O'Brien about SharePoint syntax. He's going on to from um, the document processing into forms processing. And so uh, Chris has gone through in his typical detailed fashion, spelling out how you can have SharePoint syntax process a bunch of documents that look a lot the same, for example, invoices or purchase orders and so on, and do the extraction of data into metadata and all that kind of great stuff. So thanks, Chris, for doing that. And so next in the series, uh, it's up to three of them now that he's done. So good to see things moving along there. Yeah, as usual, level of detail and screenshots he puts through is insane 
really gives you, I mean, I can scroll through that and just get an idea of what this syntax thing's all about. I would always slip up and just call it Semtex, but I think that's just probably the product dilemmas they have of naming these things, right? Yeah, really cool tech. It's amazing to see what that team has done. Um, I know there's a bunch of folks I know from old guard of SharePoint that's still involved over there on that. And um, it's really cool to see how they've got that going now with AI as well. And actually, one of the links that he put in there, which kind of distracted me from reading his whole article, is the link to the AI Builder Capacity Calculator. Oh, wow. And so the Syntax uses AI Builder, which is part of the Power Platform built on top of cognitive services, et cetera. And so uh, there's a simple, you know, kind of like the Azure Pricing Calculator where you can tell it how much of this stuff you're going to do and how much of that stuff you're going to do. And it'll give you an estimate as to what your monthly cost would be. And you can determine then if it's included in your units that come with your license or if it's something you have to add on. So great to see that moving forward as well. Yeah, that's really cool. The last thing I'm putting in here is... Uh, a little bit disappointing news, but we talked back at Ignite or Spring Ignite, whatever they called the second round. There was a talk about Microsoft Teams Connect, which is the brand name for shared channels. And uh, Vesa has posted a blog post. He noticed on the roadmap that the item has been delayed till November of 2021, which is a little bit disappointing. But a reason I wanted to include this is because he did go through and, and go through a bit of what the, this offering is going to be with links to the announcement and stuff. So it gives you another chance to go through and see what it is that Microsoft Teams Connect will be and how it can help us. And because I think it's going to take some planning for most organizations, even when it does roll out to, to get things going to make it work for all your customers. So, yeah, I don't like, for instance, I, the build of Teams I'm on, I don't have it, but Daryl has it. And we were trying to work out how we wanted to use it in our t um, org, primarily because like I have a team for my team. This is the CPX team. We also have like a broader team and, you know, having those channels shared across those teams so you don't have to manage permissions and stuff is actually pretty pretty neat. Um, but there's also the benefit with our external parties and having teams that show up in multiple places that, you know, we can have like an announcements channel that is in every single team that we have one-on-one -on -one with a partner. And so there's a bunch of like, architectural things we want to try and work out and play with but yeah unfortunately because it's not on our builds even internally um, we can't do that right now which is a shame yeah well I, again i don't know that there's necessarily a developer story around this but it certainly is going to impact every team's user and that includes all of us for sure so it's absolutely worth no i think there is i think there will be i mean there's going to have to be apis around well, that that's true. Yes, these yeah. shared channels that you, you want to automate right like if you're provisioning out a team for every customer in a CRM and you want to share an announcements channel across all those teams, the easiest way to be able to do that is going to be through the API. So, And 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 if I have an app in my team and now yeah. a, an external guest using the shared connect is in there, what's the context looking right Correct. there and the authentication story and stuff. So yeah, when I said not about developer story, I, I mean, I don't know how much of an API surface area there will be, but there will be some stuff that we'll have to be aware of. So looking forward to that hitting up there. So, but anyways, that's, that's a post from us on that. So I wanted to get that out in front of folks. And so this week on the show, I sat down with Cam Dwyer. He um, sounds a little bit like you. Cam is from Australia, and I'm a little jealous because he his, he lives on the beach or very next to the beach. I was a little <laughs> bit sad. He does. He um, occasionally have shared photos with me of where he is, and I'm like, oh, my God, that is such a cool place to be where he is. But, yeah, very jealous. Yeah, so Cam came on, and it, it started uh, – initially, I, I said I wanted to talk to him about 
using add-ins in the Office clients. You know, I know we've had Juan Balmori on a few times to talk about the Office add-in story, but this is an external person. And then we, uh, you know, like Paul generally does, we go down a thread, <laughs> some random tangent, but we talked a bit about the add-ins. We talked a bit about DevOps for, for uh, as well and, and a little catch up. So it was great to have Cam on and we appreciate him coming on and uh, look forward to getting back in the groove of things. Although there's a bit of a conference coming up, maybe that might schedule a little bit of the plans, but we'll work on getting things uh, back in flow and getting news out to everyone as best we can thank you and thank you for picking up the slack on the interviews while i've been off and busy with build which is up and coming soon so um yeah hopefully we have we'll have a lot more podcasts coming up as all that announcement rolls out um later on in may yep hey then uh, enjoy everyone and we'll talk next week hello out there this is mark cashman from the interzone here with my co-host chris mcnulty the IntraZone is the show about the Microsoft 365 intelligent internet. That means we get to look left to right across the entire realm of the world's productivity cloud. We bring in guests inside and outside from Microsoft to cover topics all across things like SharePoint, OneDrive, Yammer, Stream. We talk about things that are really tiny features all the way up to really big things like Microsoft data centers and how all these services work inside them. That's right. We take our show into data centers, into our development labs, to live events, and hopefully out to you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can find more about us at aka.ms slash the IntraZone. This week on the podcast, I'm happy to welcome Cam Dwyer to the show. Welcome, Cam. Uh, thanks for having me, Paul. So, Thank you for uh, taking the time out of your morning and uh, kind of chat with us. So why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? Uh, okay. Uh, yes, my name's Cameron DeWire. I am the Chief Technology Officer at OnePlace Solutions, which is an ISV that plays in the Microsoft 365 ecosystem. And we have done for the past 15 years having products in that space. Uh, we traditionally started out with SharePoint and Office, writing Office add-ins that provided a tighter integration between SharePoint and the desktop. And we've sort of been riding that way from on-premises products to more software as a service, SharePoint in the cloud, Office in the cloud, and sort of transitioning from those more desktop installed solutions to modern software as a service, web-based technologies, but predominantly solving similar business challenges that people have had. Uh, a lot of work in Outlook with email management. Yeah, just really trying to make solutions that organizations have built on SharePoint better adopted throughout their organization and their user base. And the, what caught my interest as I was uh, following Twitter was that you, you've got these Outlook add-ins or non-SharePoint add-ins to start with, right? And so what I think in my my background, I remember we had this big, VSTO com add-in model that ran Outlook on the desktop. And obviously the add-in model is different now. So can you give us a, just a, an overview of what the technology stack looks like if I'm writing an Outlook add-in or an Office add-in for that matter? So the, the com add-ins or VSTO add-ins are, are still available and still supported for Outlook on the desktop. But as the years have gone by, we've clearly got Outlook available in many more locations than just on the desktop. We've got Outlook in a web browser, we've got Outlook on a Mac, and we've got Outlook on phones now as well, which probably unsurprisingly is actually where email first gets consumed. 
that tipping point happened many, many years ago is in that people will read an email on their, des- on their uh, device before they read it on the desktop. The VSTO and comm solutions were never going to get there. They're only ever intended to run on a Windows PC. So under the more modern web-based model, we're really talking a web technology stack. And as long as it's JavaScript, HTML, CSS, uh, you can use anything you like. You're really hosting a web-based application uh, somewhere and that is just being rendered in an iframe or in a web control uh, within Outlook uh, on those different devices. And that gives you a, a common runtime that any device can can render and use. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's very similar to writing something like a, a sh- uh, SPFX SharePoint uh, framework extension or, or a web part in that that technology stack is very much up to you and you can use something as, as simple as uh, plain JavaScript or jQuery or something like a full-blown framework like Vue or React uh, or Angular. So when I want to do SharePoint framework development, I need this generator that creates a bunch of stuff for me. Is it a similar model of developing add-ins for, for Office? Yeah, sure. So the Yeoman generator, which dev folks are probably very familiar with from doing SharePoint development, there is a Yeoman Office generator as well. So that Yeoman Office generator will allow you to create add-ins for Outlook, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and get up and running very, very quickly, just like you'd be used to with a a SharePoint uh, framework extension. And it works in a very similar way in that it'll stamp out all the the framework and files, which are very similar. At the end of the day, it's just a web application that's hosted at a URL. And for uh, add-ins, you have the concept of a manifest, which is something that you load into the host application. So you host that in Outlook or Word or, or, or Excel. And that's really just telling uh, the, the host office application where your functionality is to light up. Now, typically we find that's a task pane that sort of slides out from the right-hand side and it just is a pointer to the URL that you want to host when that task pane slides out. You do have control over the ribbons and you can put uh, your own buttons and things up in the ribbon and there's different contexts that you can light it up in. But that's what the manifest really is doing. It's just defining how is your extension, your add-in going to surface itself within the host application and where do those resources lie, which is typically just boils down to URLs that need to be called. And is there a client SDK bit? Like, for example, in, in an Outlook add-in, maybe I want to com- inter- interact with the message that's being read or being composed, right? So I, is there a way for me to get access to more than just the ribbon, like you said? Yeah, sure. So uh, that's the Office.js JavaScript library. And Office.js is really, that's the modern API to the Office clients. And that they've split that into what's called the Office.js common library. So that's things like your dialogues, um, some, very, some very basic uh, APIs that go across all the different Office clients. And then you have dedicated ones that will provide the APIs into, so if you're in Outlook, it'll give you access to folders and mail items and calendar entries. And if you're in Word, you've got paragraphs and set, uh, the things you can step through. And in Excel, you've got cells and, and ranges and things like that. That That is your, your API into those host office applications. So you load that in as a JavaScript library uh, and then you, yeah, you can just call it and access it. There you go, off and off you go, right? Now, the I assume since you know, the, you know this is all part of the Microsoft 365 platform that there is some type of context for the current user and or token acquisition. Is that a fair statement, or is it still I roll your own? <laughs> like for Teams, has got SSOs rolling out. What's what's the story like inside the office out add-ins? Yeah, there is there is an SSO uh, rolling out. It's only just recently come, so SSO is coming through so that you can get the context of the current user. 
there's another level which is interesting in, in Office add-ins in that you can include the Office JS library and you can actually get access not necessarily to user and their data that's in Office 365, but you can get access to what they're working on. So let's say uh, you're writing an Excel add-in and you just want to manipulate data that is on the is on the worksheets and in, in the spreadsheet that they're working on at the moment. You can actually get access to that data directly without having to worry about authenticating the user. And that's part of the manifest process in that inside of your manifest where you define where the code is sort of to be loaded in from, you also have uh, permissions that you can ask for. And so you can ask for just read permissions to the current workbook, or you could ask for edit permissions to the current workbook. And so the user is actually giving you consent to do that as an add-in as they're loading the manifest in. And so that gives you one level of control without needing to go to what we could traditionally think of of standing up an app registration and doing scopes and permissions and consent, because that's really giving consent for you as an application to call back into their, their Office 365 or the Microsoft 365 environment to get at data. But for Office add-ins, there is this extra level that is sort of just what they're working on at that point in time or the file they're working on, if you'd like to think of it like that. So the current file in Excel, a task pane application can sort of sit next to the, f- the file and read and write to it. Yeah, without requiring any specialized permissions. But then going beyond that and authenticating the user and calling back into their Microsoft 365 environment, you are looking at your traditional app registration and then typically using a Microsoft graph to call back into it. And there is a story for single sign-on that's just been launched, I think, certainly within the last 12 months as that's been rolling out through. Yeah, you know, I had forgotten about that, you know, the the context inside the current session of the browser that really makes the total sense. I really I really like that. Now, the the next thing that that comes to mind and you mentioned you're an ISV and so we I've run into similar issues when you're working on an application and and not, you've got a, different developers doing different things. How, how do you manage these app manifests and app registrations for Different environments, right? Because dev and test and prod or pre-prod and so on, et cetera, right? Um, and uh, do you have a, a, a an approach that, that works for you that you want to share? Yeah, sure. So we, we, we struck the problem. I guess let's highlight the problem of, of doing the development first, then I'll, I'll go about how we solved it. But uh, we use Azure DevOps internally to do our product development. And we, you've got your main branch. And then as developers are working on tasks, they'll be branching off, creating their own branch to complete a task. And once that task is completed or they've developed it, they will create a pull request. And at that point in our in our cycle, that's when other developers typically come in and do a code review. Now, what's I think what the typical approach for most development teams is, is that code review is done on the pull request. But once it passes the code review, it's then merged into some branch, whether it be directly into your main branch or you might have another branch that's used for your user acceptance testing or dog fooding. Once it goes into that branch, then uh, people come in and they actually test the functionality. And we find that that's often where the problems are, are picked up, not necessarily at the code level, but once someone actually goes in to do the user acceptance testing. But your code is already now into a shared environment where other developers will be pushing changes as well. And you find yourself committed as a dev team that, okay, now that that code change has been pushed into that environment, we can't ship until we've sorted out all of the issues. So there's got to be this there's this big pressure on going through and either sorting out all the issues or you've got to try and roll back those changes so that someone else's changes can get pushed through the, the cycle. Or you push them single-threaded, right? Fix one and then the next one, which is a lot of churn, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what we moved to instead was 
we decided to build out some functionality in our DevOps uh, pipeline so that as a as we do a pull request, and certainly for the Office add-ins, as we've just been talking about, that stack is often, it's, it's just a web application at the end of the day. And for us, we use Angular, and it's just a static website that um, is getting created. So every time a pull request goes in or a change is made to a pull request, we actually stand up the whole front-end application. Uh, we host that in Blob Storage in Azure. And so every pull request has its own URL that we can start the application up from. And the idea of that is that we do our code reviews, uh, but there's also an environment sitting there for every single PR that a UAT can be done against. So we actually do the UAT on the individual pull request. So it's not until all the bugs have been fixed and it's, it's really ready for production. At that point, we'll close the pull request down and it can get merged straight into that higher level branch and go through the different rings of release. But then I guess you've got these different URLs, but with the Office add-ins, the manifest is a critical part um, of being able to deploy that into the host application so that somebody can test it. So you can imagine that if each one of these different PRs had a different URL, then you'd have to, as a as someone that wanted to test it, you would have to create this manifest, put the right URLs in this manifest to point to that PR, and then sideload it or get it into the Office application somehow. And uh, one of our developers, shout out for Brett McKenzie, because I know he uh, he's an avid watcher of your show. He was the one that came up with this. Oh, thank you, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> he's the one that came up with this approach, was that we actually have an Office add-in that sits permanently in our developers and our testers' machines. And what it does is when it starts up, it doesn't have any functionality to run our applications. What it is is it's a, it's a way to navigate into the active PRs. And so this add-in starts up and it will have... Uh, a few links on it. The first link will be to show the developer's local machine. So show our add-in running on the local developer's machine and that will just pass through to a local URL. And then we have our shared environments like our dog feeding environments. But what it also does is it will go and have a look at DevOps and it'll have a look at all the active PRs that are out there and it will dynamically redirect through to those URLs. So from a tester's perspective or from a developer's perspective, you could be working on your own task and someone else's task could come up for user acceptance testing and your machine can still be running your branch of the software locally. You could be locally hosting yours and you could just start this adding up and, and start testing anyone else's um, tasks that are up for, for acceptance testing. Uh, and there's some pretty cool stuff that we had to extend the pipeline there. So we've got web service hooks coming in from when PRs are created or updated or deleted from Azure DevOps. We're obviously provisioning the sites, but then also maintaining this list of PRs and the, the associated URLs that this add-in is reading from. Uh, and we're using a bit of graph there as well because there's the complexity around authentication within our add-ins. And those that have dealt with app registrations, you'll realize that that's pretty critical to the security in that an application to actually go through the authentication flow, those reply URLs or the redirect URLs that after the authentication is finished needs to redirect back to your host application. So we're using the graph as part of that provisioning process to go and have a look at the app registration that's there for these PRs and dynamically add and remove uh, valid redirect URIs for that authentication process. But so what it's led to at the end of the day is this really uh, streamlined way in which we can do all of our our UAT on those PRs and be very confident that when we push something up the levels of the branches, it's not going to come back and bite us and we're not going to be finding ourselves in that situation where you know it's all hands on deck to try and fix these UAT issues because they're blocking everything else from going out the door. This is the fantastic solution to a problem. And I want to drill into a little bit on that because our audience is developers and we don't care about testing so much as the, all the fun stuff. So <laughs> the um, so one exam one struggle that I've had, um, and I'm wondering if the, this fits the same kind of model, 
sometimes I'm working on client side code on my machine, but I'm calling an API. And and like originally we was starting it, the API was on my machine and the client side code was on my machine. But then at some point, I don't want to call the API on my machine. I want to call the API that's maybe up in the cloud, but I now I have a different app and I have to change my web parts. So a similar kind of concept, right? Just to, to speed up my development process, this kind of approach would work, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And so we've got different components. We run a microservices architecture. Um, so for a lot of those backend components, our, our front end code by default will point to our dog food backend services. So that if you if you just which a bulk of the bulk of our work is done on that front end client application, and yeah, we'll be hitting hitting the dog food ones. But what it also gives you the ability to do by having that sort of that first add in running, which is orchestrating what gets loaded in, is we can also determine some state in information in there as well. So do you want to start it up, but blow away all of their subscription details and their user details so it's a first run experience, or do you want to load them into certain ways of doing it? So in your scenario, Paul, you, that could be something like saying, I want to start this up, but I also want to dictate which backend services I want this particular instance of it to be calling. So it can do some really funky things like that. And also by having it sort of permanently there and not having to sideload things in, it makes it really quick because we can do the same thing in environments that are typically really hard to get user acceptance testing set up in. So uh, that same add-in that does the orchestration works on an iPhone. So I can start up Outlook on an iPhone to test what some CSS changes look like on an iPhone or an Android or on an Android phone. Now, typically taking a, a website and then manually updating manifest and trying to sideload into those sorts of environments is, is time-consuming and tricky. But uh, yeah, we've managed to solve a lot of those little niggly time-consuming pieces of the process. That's awesome. So now I want to talk about your DevOps pipeline. What the obviously there's some some smarts in there. Is that done with scripting or extensions to the process, or how do you? What technology do you go about to to do these kind of operations? Uh, okay, so a lot of it is triggered out of Azure DevOps itself and the service hooks that it has. So. The trigger points for these are PRs. So as, as, a P, as a pull request is created, as a pull request is updated, or if a pull request is deleted, there are main trigger points because that's where we need to stand up the environment. So yeah, Azure DevOps has something called a service uh, hook and you can basically call out to one of your services. We have an Azure function that receives that payload when a when something happens on a PR. And then based off that, so if a new one's created, what we'll do is we'll get the details of that PR and we will write that to an Azure storage table. So we'd say this PR is currently active. This is the URL of where we've stood up the instance of it, of the build based off that PR. And then the Office add-in looks at that storage table. And if we get a PR once it's been deleted or its, its status has changed, so it's not active anymore, we'll go and remove it from that table and decommission the website so that it no longer shows up through the office add-in and it, it takes care of takes care of the process. So you don't you don't have logic running in the pipeline so much as just a hook to an external code and so a, 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 you just had a function app just doing all that work there, right? Correct. Yeah, because I've struggled with putting too much stuff into the pipeline and maybe maybe that's the solution is no, don't put it in the pipeline, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, provis like the provisioning of the website and building that, like like that's all sort of YAML and pipeline because you, you need that anyway to, to stand the websites up. But yeah, the orchestration around knowing what's going on, yeah, we've done that outside of outside of the build pipeline and just done a service webhook and then, yeah, Azure function, our own sort of Azure bits and pieces to, to track that. 
now you, as you update the app registration, right? And and, and I know that the, there's been a new update to the Microsoft 365 CLI around some of that. But so do you, is it just the app URI that you're doing in app register? Do you do something more featured with the, with the applications? And then following, are you doing that, I guess, through the graph endpoint, right? Correct. We're doing it through the graph endpoint and we aren't creating brand new app registrations for every one of those PRs. So we have one app registration that covers off all of the PRs and what we're dynamically doing. So it's that Azure function. So when the PR, we get the notification that a PR has been created or changed, we uh, use the Microsoft graph from within the Azure function that receives the payload and we will go in there and we will update the valid redirect uh, URIs for that app registration. So I guess one caveat of our process is if we want to actually change the scopes or some definition of that app registration, it is applying to all of the PRs that are inside of it. Um, but we tend to find that that doesn't happen a lot, especially when you've got dynamic scopes and things in modern authentication. As you mentioned before, right, you're not necessarily needing an app registration for the office add-ins, right? So this is just in scenarios where you need to get a login or a scope of some kind for a specific process then, right? So it's, I don't need to, if I'm just doing office add-ins, I don't necessarily need to go do the, all that kind of work, right? Depending on what my app is doing, right? Correct. It's only if you're wanting to call back in to a, a service. Yeah, if you're just wanting to do the lightweight scenarios like I was originally talking about there in Excel and just helping out the user with the data that they've currently got in their workbook, then yeah, you wouldn't need to authenticate back into services. That's that's absolutely correct. It's At first glance, it sounds like you have a lot of websites provisioned up in Azure, but you mentioned the, the storage thing. So do you find that difficult to manage or expensive or is it really pretty much the problem solved and point click and you're done? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had to uh, manage it. We've had this process up and running for a little over two years and uh, it maintains itself. I haven't had to go in there to clean anything up. So Yeah, and, and I presume you get the bill, right? So is running a lot of websites in this fashion expensive? Well, no, and it's only, it's only the active pull requests. So that's limited by your development team. Like how many active pull requests do we have at any one time? And that's sort of capped. And as the pull requests complete, then our process deletes that website and it's free for the next one. And Azure Blob Storage for the size of our um, static web app, which is a few megabytes, really, it's the cost is zero. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Well, I love that. What it's what I'm hearing is, right, so you guys are building a software as a service, but using your services on your own to help build that, right? And so, obviously, not everybody who's listening is an ISV, but from this software as a service model and these kind of principles around DevOps, well, I guess what I'm, trying, what I'm trying to get at is, how would you tell just the regular developer that it's worth it investing in these types of tools for developers in addition to building this big service, right? Yeah, that's a very good point. I mean, then that goes, I guess, a lot through through software. We are an ISV, so that's one luxury we do have as an ISV is we know that it's worth doing things right because we're going to be building on top of this technology for many, many years to come. Uh, whereas as a consultant, you often go in there, and I used to be a consultant in a former life. I was a consultant for almost a decade before we transitioned the company into um, being a product uh, company. So I'm very familiar with the pressures that you have under you as uh, a consultant and having to deliver a project. You know, Often, especially if it's the first time in at a customer, you get a certain budget and you've really got to prove yourself or you've got to stretch that money as far as you can get it so you win the next project. And so that often doesn't extend to always doing things that are for the longevity of that of that project. It's 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 an interesting one. It probably depends on the size of your development team and how many times you're going to be going through the revision process. And it's 
it's uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of theories, there's a lot of methodologies, and there's a lot of ways that are working that are out there that are published, and you know they've all they've all got certain benefits and or certain pros and cons. But I'm I'm very firmly a believer in adapting things to fit your needs, and that goes through everything in business. You know, sometimes you do need to write a very official looking document that looks great and you can stick in front of people and they'll be blown away by your document. And other times you can draw something with a lead pencil and that is the most cost effective and best solution to a problem is just to draw it with a pencil (laughs) and share it with the people that you need to share it with because anything else is just going to be wasting someone's time and money. So I I look at the DevOps process in the same way and what's the value of doing this? And so, so building out and automating a pipeline really depends on, well, how many times are you going to be using that automation? What's the cost of setting up that automation versus the cost of having done the, doing that manually? With automation, there's, there also comes, you get the benefit of having things done in a repeatable and a reliable way as well, which means less mistakes going through that process because you, you're confident that it's going to happen the same every single time. And, and that really comes down to how many moving parts are there. The more manual steps you have in performing a process, the larger the scope for error. And the more times you have to repeat that process, the, the bigger your cost savings are going to be. But it's hard to give. That's probably the best advice I can give is that you've really got to look at it at your individual situation and, and weigh those things up. You mentioned moving parts, right? And so do you find um, it helpful to have lots of parts that are more point focused and easier to develop as a team? Or are you more on the other side of the pendulum of, of put everything in a web service so that I don't have 18 different services to orchestrate, et cetera? Where, where do you fit on that, that pendulum of, of, uh, of architecture? I really like uh, splitting it up into different service components uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that you're keeping things isolated, you're keeping things small, and it allows you to ship a bit quicker as well. So we definitely we have our front-end application, but then our back-end services is where we get the, the separation from. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of benefits. We used to run it as one big web application at the back-end that did all of the different bits and pieces. But then we started splitting it up and having individual services. And I guess some of the some of the benefits that we got from doing that, well, the major benefits we got from doing that was in resiliency. Uh, I think that's that was that was a key piece because once you start breaking things up into microservices, what you often find is things become queue based. And so when one component needs to talk to another component, it, it typically sticks something on a queue rather than just being a synchronous process where a call is made and the service waits from a, for a response from the other service. Because if an error happens or something goes wrong, one thing times out and you can't replay this event. But when something goes on a queue and that queue is the way that your, your different services communicate, if something goes wrong, then something can be left on a queue and you can retry it. It's also really good from a deployment perspective because you can swap pieces out in that chain and rather than having an outage, things just sit in a queue and as soon as the new thing comes online again, it can start processing that queue. So you get you get a lot better uh, yeah, resiliency and visibility. It's also great from a development point of view as well because you have these clear delineations between what is the input of something and what is the output of it. So as long as you've got a message going onto that queue, that is the start of that unit of functionality, which makes it great from a testability point of view as well. What can become difficult is um, managing the different versions of all those components. Whereas when you have a monolithic app, you know all the different bits that fit together because they all shipped as one unit and they are one unit. So you can't not have the different components. But yeah, when you start to break things up and it gets larger and larger, you have all this version has to work with that version and this bit needs to be backwards compatible and that can get a little bit harder, which probably leads into a different 
topic of conversation, which is sort of software as a service versus organizations hosting your software inside of their Azure environment, which I I could do a whole episode on this one, but just how comfortable people are or organizations are with ISVs hosting and running a service that has their data flowing through it, which from an efficiency point of view is awesome if everyone's comfortable with that security arrangement because what it means is it really is software as a service. The end customer is just paying a monthly bill and they don't have to worry about anything. And we will take care of you know upgrading the different components, making sure the right versions of all the different components are there. But yeah, where microservices can become a lot, lot harder to manage is when customers aren't comfortable with the SaaS offering and they're wanting to run those components inside of their own environment. Because now, unlike a monolithic app where you just got one version of it, you've got to make sure in all your customers' environments that they've got the right versions of the right components and all. And, and that's where it doesn't work so well. Which is what Microsoft used to do with the SharePoint on-prem, right? They'd have to support versions that are three, six, nine, twelve 12 years old because not every customer gets up to speed at the same time, right? So um, it sounds like a similar, could be a similar issue in that scenario, right? Uh, oh, definitely. It, it does, it stifles the innovation a lot because as I think it's, Pretty plain to see with the amount of innovation that's happening in Microsoft 365 and there's new features dropping, gosh, just constantly, constantly. <laughs> but that's only possible when you're on an evergreen model and they have control of all the different components. Um, it's, it's much slower when you've got to be able to support all these different tenancies with multiple different combinations of things. And the support that goes along with that is um, is huge. So I think there's a big difference between running software as a service and it's true, it's hosted in one location through a vendor and they're able to really taking the monkey off, off the customer's back from um, being able to run the service point of view. But then I think there's, a, there's this whole industry where things are sold as SaaS, but deployed Inside their own environments, like like it's always been done. So really, the only thing that's SaaS is the billing. They're paying a monthly <laughs> bill, but they're having to support it. They're having to upgrade it. Yeah. They're having to maintain it. Um, yeah, the only thing that's SaaS is the billing. Wow, that's that's too funny. You know, so from from our perspective, we don't store customer data in our data centers, right? So uh, if a, if there's a NAS solution that the customer has where there's data that they are generating, we ask where are we going to put it, right? And so to to kind of counter that hesitancy about about shipping stuff to who knows where, that services model does allow for that, right? We, we've seen success in that as well. And I presume you guys have have as well, where I can just send the queue to to your queue, your processor, if that's what I need, right? Yeah, that's pretty. That's yeah, that's, that's that's the same with us. We don't store customer data, but there is customer data that flows through the services to get it to there. So, uh, and different different organizations, and and rightly so. Like people should be concerned and should know where their data, how their data is being handled and, and what security uh, mechanisms are in place to to protect them. But I think it's a new world. I think it, it all comes down to education and, and openness as well. I think in the old days, you know, you installed a piece of software and on, on your machine and had very little idea what was happening, what the code was doing, what the data was doing. But um, I think everyone's becoming more security conscious and you have to expect as an ISV to answer those questions about, well, what is this doing with my data? And because companies have compliance regulations that they need to meet. And so they need that openness to, to know how products work and what they do with the data. Well said. Thank you very much. And I really appreciate you sharing uh, your tips with us today. Uh, I certainly love this DevOps tip. I need to go think on that a little bit and, and come up with that approach. So thanks so much for, for sharing. We really appreciate that. If folks want to chat, are you available on the social media at all for them to reach out? Oh, certainly. I'm on Twitter as Cameron DeWire. 
I have a blog which I try to blog regularly at Cameron DeWire and uh, I'm sure you'll be able to find me on LinkedIn as well. They're my main mechanisms of making myself available to the community. I'm also a Microsoft uh, MVP in Office Development as well, which I didn't say at the start. So that keeps me out and about in the community. Yeah, there's lots of virtual events going on at the moment. Uh, so you should see me pop up in a few of those ones doing talks here and there and can't wait till we get back to a point where I can actually get out and we can meet up uh, in person and start doing some in-person events again. So I'm really missing that. I'm sure everyone is. Yes, absolutely. So thanks so much. Uh, uh, really appreciate you coming on. Uh, it's awesome. Great to talk to you, Paul. Thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 